because it's important that we get clear in our minds the audience that that the author or the author is writing to. Um, I can remember as a child in Sunday school, a teacher saying, "Well, who is this written to?" and somebody'd say, "Christians," and the teacher would say, "Well, how do you know?" and it says the, the student would say, it "says brothers." And, oh, that's right. Uh, so for us, the term brother in the epistles especially always means believers. Yes? But but we I think we may have gone through this last week, but it was last time. But it was so quickly that we went through, I'm not sure it sunk in. The word with this, I was wondering the name he why is it called Hebrews instead of brothers or <clears throat> the name Hebrews? Uh, the um the assumption of the church from the second century on is that the book is written to Hebrew Christians or, or to Hebrew um, people who confess Jesus in some sense. So was it named in the second century? Uh, if, if you recall, very early I showed you a picture of that manuscript. Do you recall that? Okay, let me run back to it. Wait, hold on. Um, yeah, it was very old. Uh, here, uh, this is Papyrus 46, which is dated between 175 and 225 A.D. And some actually dated a little earlier. It's a very extensive manuscript of all things. It was broken up and parts of it are in different places, but... Uh, the handwriting and the age of the papyrus and so on clearly make it make it obvious that the, that the thing belongs together. But right here, um, if I can find the cursor, this is the last line of the of the book of Philemon, and this says two Hebrews. So so sometime around two hundred by sometime around two hundred, people were already assuming that this was written to Hebrew people. Uh, the arguments would be almost impossible for a Gentile audience. Um, you couldn't go back to Zeus and think you're going to get to the kingdom of God. But you could go back to Moses and think you're going to get to the kingdom. Does that make sense to you? So the kind of arguments that the book is making almost necessitate that it's dealing with Jewish people in one way or another. Now the so, so when it means, says brethren, it just means fellow Jews. Yeah, and that's where I'm headed with that. That's good. Um, let's get there. Um, here. Uh, in Matthew 5, 22 to 24, um, I can't, of course, I can't remember that now. I looked at it earlier, but it won't come to my mind. Matthew five twenty-two. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to the judgment. Are you with me here? Um, who is Jesus speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount? He's oh. to yeah, he's not even talking only to believers. He's talking to non-believers too. So when he talks about brother, what does he mean? Jews. Well, he means Jews, people who are of the nation of Israel, descendants of Abraham. Does this make sense to you? <clears throat> and all of the rest of these references including all of these in the book of Acts, every one of them in Acts 2.29, um, 
the, the, the lost people in the temple, remember this, day of Pentecost, cry out to Peter and say, brothers, what shall we do? They're not thinking about brothers in Christ. Yes. And so on through all, all of these references and acts do that. Well, what, where did they get that idea? Well, they got it from the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, the word brother is used, um, I don't know, hundreds of times. The standard Hebrew dictionary gives 11 different senses to the word. <laughs> uh, I've got three of them on the screen. Uh, one is some companion that you have. Um, another is a fellow tribesman, somebody of the same tribe that you're in. Hebrew doesn't have a word for cousin. Doesn't have a word for grandmother, grandfather, grandson, granddaughter. Okay? Uh, so you talk about your, your mother's uh, brother's son or your mother's brother's daughter. Is that, are you with me here? Read Leviticus 20, what would it be? Um, 18, I guess it's Leviticus 18, and you have all the degrees of relationship that you must avoid in marriage. And, and it uses this kind of language because Hebrew doesn't have these terms. Uh, so a person who is of the same tribe you're in, but not of, your, not of your clan or your father's house, is still your brother who's in your generation. Uh, and then sixth, a feral, fellow countryman. And those are just three of 11 different senses to the word brother in the Old Testament. So what I've got to understand is when he says brothers, even when he says um, who share in the heavenly calling, we talked about the word, do you have partakers in verse 1, partakers of the holy, heavenly calling? That word, just to remind you, we said this last time, but turn back to chapter 1. <clears throat> um, and uh, verse, uh, specifically verse 9. Speaking to the Son, God says, You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. For this reason, God your God has, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your, and what do you have? Companions. Companions. That's the same word as we have as partakers in three one. Partaker sounds like you actually take part in the thing, yes? But companion might not mean that in uh, various places, um, Luke 5, 7, Peter and uh, John were partners in a fishing business. All right. Are you with me here? Um, or in Hebrews 3, 14, that's going to be a little, less, a little less clear. But it's going to be critical that we see what this word means. The word is in Greek, metakos. And I, I only mention that because we're going to have to come back to it at a very important point in a couple of weeks. So um, uh, in order to make sure that we get it, we need to have that clarified in our minds. So participants in the holy calling. Um, uh, but these people, if you, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Um, they are holy. We, we skipped that word. Holy. What does holy mean? We talked about yeah, 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 not enough. Uh, my, my favorite professor said if I take my, my Greek New Testament and I set it apart for my study this afternoon and my study, I have sanctified it. Well, no, that's not the case. 
because uh, you can set a lot of things apart if you remember. Oh, gosh, I hate to even use this. Maybe I shouldn't. The Three Stooges? <laughs> That's pretty lowbrow, I know, and some of you may have never even heard of them. Luke, have you heard of the Three Stooges? Okay. Well, yeah, at, one, at one point... I think it's Curly is 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 making cooking something in the kitchen, and he says, "Separate two eggs." So he takes two uncracked eggs and holds them together, and then pulls them apart. <laughs> uh, set apart. It's uh, it's it's more important to what it's set apart. There's yeah, set apart to the service and worship of any deity in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy twenty three five is a is that right? Um, I always wonder if it's 25, but I think it's 23.5. Let me look it up just to make sure. Um, holy is not, at its most fundamental level, a, a term that refers to morality. And I'll explain why as we go. Deuteronomy 23, it's not 23.5. It's 23. Um, ah, there it is, 17. No Israelite woman is to be a cult prostitute. In Hebrew, it's a holy woman. And no Israelite man is to be a cult prostitute. In Hebrew, it's a holy man. Um, but they're talking about idolatrous worship. One of the gods of Canaan, um, Anat, is called the, the Holy One. But, but she's a prostitute. And furthermore, she revels when her worshipers gather at her temple, she revels in wading in among them with a sword and slaughtering them and wading in their blood. Are you with me here? Yeah. <laughs> Over time, you kind of think they'd drop away. Um, the, uh, the point I'm getting at is, is that holiness in the scriptures is not first and foremost a category for the creature, is not first and foremost a category of morality. It's a category of distinctiveness, what you're dedicated to. Does that make sense to you? Uh, so all Israelites are holy people. They are God's holy people. The most famous statement that, ass that asserts this <clears throat> doesn't even use the word holy, but it it has the same idea. Deuteronomy 6, 4, uh, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord, I, and I think it ought to be read, the Lord alone. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That is to say, God has entered into an exclusive relationship with Israel. He is, in effect, dedicated to himself to them. Thus, Isaiah can call him the Holy One of Israel. Are you with me? But he expects them to reciprocate in the same kind of exclusive relationship. Just like when you got married, you thought probably this was going to be exclusive. Yes? Probably. Yeah. And, and so... <laughs> so the, the point is then that God is the Holy One of Israel and Israel is the holy people of God, but not moral. So that we looked at the concept of sanctification. Um, where did we do it? Earlier than that, apparently.
Oh, yes, it was back at 2.10 and 11. Um, we looked at the category of, of sanctification, and we talked about changed status, not changed lifestyle. The Lord is the one who sanctifies the camp of Israel, but they're not more moral. They still make golden calves. Yes? Right? Right? But they're still a holy people because God dwells in their midst. Yes? Does this make sense so far? I made the point further that the word sanctify only rarely refers to a process of moral uh, growth or improvement, uh, growth into the likeness of God. It's, It's a rare term in the New Testament to mean that. It is used a couple of times, at least two, maybe three or four, but it's used many more times than that, and so I cannot say, whenever I read about sanctification or being sanctified, I cannot say that it has a moral category to it. It may issue in a moral uh, uh, effect on the life, but that's not its primary point. I have always heard it used to that. I know, that's the only way we use it. Uh, our problem is we don't have a single term for um, spiritual growth that we can turn into a theological term. So when we teach theology courses, we come and teach an element or part of that is called soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And part of the doctrine of salvation, we, we put the three tenses of salvation on the board a couple of weeks, a couple of times ago. <clears throat> that middle aspect of salvation, growth into the image of Christ, growth into the likeness to God, is what we've called sanctification, because we just don't have any other better term to address it. But the word doesn't mean that in Scripture for the most part. Most of the time it doesn't mean that. So what do we do? Um, We have to learn to differentiate between the theological use of the term and the biblical use of the term. Does this make sense? This is an aspect of what we're doing in this study on Hebrews. We're involving ourselves in what's called biblical theology. Um, my systematic theology can be sound and uh, everything in it consistent with scripture but I have to distinguish my systematic categories from my biblical categories now that sounds odd and it sounds dangerous doesn't it Um, it is odd but the the problem is if I can use for example the word save in three senses the initial phase, new birth and justification, the progressive phase, sanctification, and the climactic phase, glorification, then it's at least possible that in any place where I read the word save or salvation, I might be talking about one and not all of those. I may be talking about one or another element and not every one of them. Am I making sense to you? My, My most important... Takeaway from that is, I've got to let the Bible define its own terms. Every author has the right to define his own terms. There's a limitation of that. You can't you can't do everything with a word that you'd like to do, but you uh, every author has the right to define his own terms. If they can't, then Paul and James contradict each other. Paul says says we're saved by by faith without works of the law. James says we're, we're saved by faith and works. 
Yes? If the authors can't define their own terms, then I've got a contradiction in Scripture. And if there's a contradiction in Scripture, it's not the Word of God. Am I making sense? Yes. So that means either they are contradicting each other or I've got different senses in James and Paul. Does this make sense to you? All right. So back to Hebrews uh, 3 then. We got through to the point uh, essentially of having come all the way to the, uh, to the urgency of, of this whole um, uh, appeal in chapter 3. He says, um, verse 14, let me pick it up there. For we have become yeah, companions. <laughs> we have become co-laborers. Are, are you with me here? Uh, we have com- become companions of Christ if we hold fast to the um, uh, beginning of our confession secure to the end. Uh, now that's critical. It, it's, a, it, it's a verse that reflects what, Paul, what the author said in, in verse 6. Look back at verse 6. Same chapter, verse 6. Christ is honored as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast the boldness and boasting of hope. Do you follow this? Um, now that sounds like it's a condition, doesn't it? Because all ifs are conditions. Yes? Turn to Second Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, I'm sorry, First Thessalonians chapter four. All condition all ifs are conditions. Amen. Amen. Chapter four. Um, uh, verse fourteen. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a condition. Note the first word in the verse, or second word, perhaps. For if. Yes? The result of that condition is God will bring uh, those who have fallen asleep in Christ uh, with him when he comes. So the resurrection of dead believers is conditioned upon your faith in the resurrection of Jesus? My mother's resurrection depends on you believing in the resurrection of Jesus? No, no. (laughs) No. Well, it's obvious here. The relationship of if-then is not always cause-effect. Are you with me here? Yes, no? Teresa, what are you thinking? So you're kind of staring at me. I'm sorry, I was paying attention. Okay, that's all right. Now I'm trying to catch up. Yeah. Sometimes it means if and indeed it is. Well, yeah, but there there are many other relationships. I want to give you one more. Okay. Um, we but but in English we often think if then is always cause effect. Because after all, if we confess our sins, condition, effect, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Yes, yeah, and now, now I've opened the can of worms, and I probably am in trouble. But, but what? But, but that's for John one nine. Yes, do you believe in verse seven? Do you, do you believe it's scripture too? First John one seven. 
No, well, no. Um, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, uh, the blood of, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Ryrie, of course, if anybody wrote the Bible, then it must be true. Amen? <laughs> so Charles Ryrie's study Bible, among other things, says in 1 John 1, 7, walking in the light is probably obedience. And that's consistent with the rest of the letter, although there's more to it than that. So let me, let me paraphrase it to get the point. The condition is obedience. The effect of meeting the condition is that you get your sins cleansed by the blood of Christ. Your obedience makes it possible for God to forgive your sins. He's already forgiven. It cannot be my obedience being the condition or cause. My, obe- my confession must be something else entirely. Let me go back then. You still have your Bible open to 1 Thessalonians 4? What if, since I cannot have cause effect in this verse, then what is the relationship? Well, if can be the evidence on which you draw the conclusion of then. So look at it again in verse 14. Uh, Here's some evidence you need to consider. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead. True or false? Then you ought also to draw the conclusion that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It's unreasonable to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and not Jesus' people. Yes? By the same token, 1 John 1, 7. Here is the evidence. How do I I tell the difference between a true teacher and a false? Because this is what's happening in, in, in 1 John's community. There are false teachers who are denying the the humanity of Jesus. They're denying righteousness as part of the work of God. They're denying uh, love as being part of the work of God in the life of people. So uh, some have left the congregation or or the, the group because the false teachers have left. They went out from us because they were not of us. Do you remember this in chapter 2? So how do I tell the difference between a true teacher and a false? A true teacher walks in the light. From that, you may draw the conclusion that, that the, tr- the teachers all fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Are you with me here? Yes, no? So how do I recognize a true teacher? Well, he agrees in doctrine and he agrees in practice with the a- other apostolic teachers of the church. Does this make sense to you? Uh, and so it's not only his practice, but it's his doctrine. It's not only his doctrine, but it's his practice. Are you with me here? So uh, obedience is involved, but walking in the light also has to do with talking publicly about your own failings, spiritual failings. Uh, somebody who hides his own spiritual failings is not a true teacher, or at least that's one of the evidences that John gives. Back to, to Hebrews chapter 3 now. And verses 6 and 14. Um, We are his house. And here is the evidence by which we know we are his house. If we hold fast the confession, uh, 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 I'm sorry, the boldness and boasting of hope. And verse 14. We are co-laborers with Christ. How do we know we're co-laborers with Christ? Because we hold fast. This, the confession secure to the end. What about the 
those that have a temporary fallen away well, and return That's a great question, and it's an important one. Um, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, how would you tell the difference between... If, if all you knew about Peter was that night, the story of that night, how would you tell the difference between Peter and Ju- Judas? You couldn't. It would be almost impossible. Yes? Um, if the only story you had about Abraham was, was Genesis twelve ten and following, the, the uh, uh, sojourn in Egypt, would you know whether Abraham was a believer or not? I couldn't tell. Because he lies, yes, to protect himself. He doesn't believe God's going to protect him. He's not acting like a, a man of faith. Yes? No. All right. Uh, so I, I can never simply... So it defies that verse of sorts. Well, no, it doesn't. What, what I'm saying is this. Uh, I can't look at one event or even one period of a person's life. I have to look at the whole life. Yeah, and that's why I'm saying it. it's the whole life. Yeah, but I'm saying it's, it's the whole life. It's not just one event. Um, Peter can fail. Let me ask you this about Peter. Did Peter's faith fail? Then Jesus prayed an ungodly prayer. Because he said, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. And the father says, nope, that's not a godly prayer. I'm not going to accept it. Yes, but that, that's my, part of my point. It's long-term, not just short-term first. Secondly, you have to define what it means that, uh, for Peter's faith to fail. What it, would, what it would have to mean in light of Peter's denials of Jesus. Mind you, this is right in the middle of the prophecy that Peter's going to deny Jesus. That Jesus says, I've prayed for you that your faith not fail. So Jesus knows he's going to deny him three times. And yet, he says, I've prayed that your faith not fail. So, he's, so it didn't any more than it did in Abraham. There is a foundation of faith that never goes away. Why not? Well, hold, hold your finger in chapter 3 of Hebrews and go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, aye, aye, aye. Uh, there, there are so many tendrils here. What do you think? First, First Peter. Yeah, I know what I'm talking about. Uh, I just don't have to make it clear to anybody else. So, First Peter chapter one, verse three. Here, Peter, in an unusual passage, there are very few of these passages in the New Testament. Puts all three of the aspects of salvation together in one passage, verses three, four, and five. So, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who, according to the greatness of his compassion, has begotten us. The initial phase of salvation. Yes? Yes? First Peter 1, 3. He has begotten us again to a living hope. The third, the climactic element of salvation. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, and he mentions the third aspect of salvation a second time, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away, kept in heaven for you who are being kept by the power of God through faith to a self. That's the, that's the middle one. That's the progressive 
Yes? What's doing the keeping in verse uh, 5? His power. His power uses an instrument to keep us, and that is faith. Why is it that I can say that Peter's faith never failed? He failed, but how can I say his faith never failed? God doesn't allow it to fail. He sustains us in our faith even when we act in unbelief. It's the question that we've been uh, visiting uh, on multiple occasions in recent weeks in in Sunday uh, class meetings. Um, Immature faith won't always know how to trust God in hardships. Yes or no? And so when immature faith is unable to trust, as I may have said to you in recent days, I can't remember, people, when my, when my mom and dad were divorced, that was, that was the nearest hell my, other, my mother ever got, uh, other than raising me, but beyond that. Uh, uh, I never saw her as low as in those years uh, after 1968. People would come to her and say, Juanita, just trust God. She said, I don't know how. She said, everything they've told me about God turns out to be wrong. I don't know who he is. But God never let go of her. I I heard about a pastor being called, this was in England, being called to the bedside of an elderly saint who was on death's door. And um, the pastor came in, knelt beside the woman. And she said, Pastor, I am so frightened I, I, I can't remember any of the promises of God. I don't have anything to hold on to. I can't remember any of the promises of God. He said, it's okay. God remembers them. And she settled down and relaxed. Are you with me here? Um, the point is that God doesn't let hold of us. He holds on. It's his power, not my faith. That, that, that means the ongoing of my, uh, of my saving, salvation life. The point, then, is if God is always sustaining it, even when I can't figure out how to trust him, I can still trust him. Are, are you with me here? So the, the point, in, then, in chapter 4, uh, chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, we are, his, we are co-laborers with Christ, if, and here's how you know, you hold fast to the, uh, confession, the beginning of the confession of, of, uh, of faith secure to the end. Or not, he doesn't. Does he have to the end here? Yes. Yes, secure to the end. The, the point then is when things get tough, and I want you to remember that this book is written in a context of, con- of, of persecution. When things get tough, and you think, wouldn't it be just... My parents hate me. My brothers and sisters won't won't talk to me. Um, I'm I'm excluded by everybody who counted in my life up to the time that I joined this group. And after all, I know God spoke to Moses. Did God speak to Moses? then am I really leaving God 
to go back to Moses? And the answer is, yes. Because you're denying a part of what God is. You're denying this one who is son, who is king. Yes? Yes? And who, because he is king, is, is worthy to be called God? And who, because he is God, is addressed as Yahweh? And who sits at the right hand of God, waiting for the enemies, his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet? So in 3, 12, and 13, exhort one another. I'm sorry, um, be, be, um, be on watch, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in withdrawing from the living God. Withdrawing from the living God doesn't mean in this book going back to Zeus or Jupiter. It means going back to Moses. Are you with me? It is Yahweh who spoke through Moses. But to deny Jesus as Yahweh is to deny Yahweh. So it's to depart from the living God. So when the persecution comes, it's going to come. Do you notice how, how frequently the question revolves around who really is Jesus? Yes or no? So I've got to keep that clear in my mind and hold fast to that. No matter what the cost is. So he goes on. Verse, now we can move into this passage, verses 16 to 19. Saying, if you're believing in Christ, it's not whether you in a given situation say, uh, deny Christ, mm-hmm. or don't stand up for Christ, yeah. if you're believing uh-huh. in him, You're trusting this one who is God. Whether you act right or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Peter never gave up on his love for Jesus. He just didn't have the strength he thought he had. Uh, he was strong physically. He wasn't strong spiritually. Um, and if I read Paul right in Second Corinthians, it's not our strength that's our best asset anyway. <laughs> Jim, <laughs> what were you thinking? Well, when I am weak... Then I am strong. Are you with me? So if I'm playing to my strength, I'm probably playing to the wrong thing. If I'm playing to my weakness in in spiritual things, then I'm probably on the right path. So when I'm confident I'll never give up, I'm probably going to get into a situation. God's going to take me right into one where I'm going to give up. (laughs) I've had that happen to me too many times. Um, we'll just see, bud. <laughs> you got a little mouse in your pocket? What do you think? Who, who is this you, who is this we that is going to do this? <laughs> uh, so uh, so uh, the issue is holding fast to Jesus no matter the cost. So he then, then raises the qu- three questions about the Exodus generation. Um, who rebelled even though they heard? Look at verse 16. For who, when they heard, rebelled? Who is it? Yeah? Well, look, how does he describe them? People Moses led out of Egypt. The people Moses led out of Egypt? How could they rebel? Folks, you've seen the Ten Commandments. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine ten plagues? And then Pharaoh finally capitulating abjectly 
and you walk out, you get to the Red Sea, you think, sure, you're going to die, but God parts the sea, two walls of water on either side, yes? No mud. No mud, and you walk through the, the sea, and the Egyptians tried to do it, and the sea collapsed on them. You get to, to uh, Mara, and there's bitter water, and you think, sure, you're going to die, but God has Moses throw a peppermint tree into the water. I don't know, what kind of tree would you have to have to make the bitter water sweet? Uh, <laughs> uh, and they get further down, and they run out of food, and he, he causes quail to come. Yes, all right, and, and manna. And uh, further down, and they run out of all kinds of water, and Moses takes a, a wooden staff, strikes the rock, and the cap on the aquifer was so thin that with a wooden, ro- wooden rod, he could strike it, and enough water would flow out for two million people and two million head of cattle for a year. And then, <laughs> you don't believe? I never figured it out. Yeah. Well, it's, it, we've said this, too, on multiple occasions in recent w- weeks and months. Sin is irrational. There is no rationality to sin. If sin is at its heart unbelief, then there is no rationality for unbelief, but it is the natural state of our hearts. So with whom was he? Uh, 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 sorry, uh, who, when they heard, rebelled? Was it not all those who came out of Egypt through Moses? Verse 17, second question, with whom was God angry? Well, what's the answer the, the author gives? That's not the, what does he say? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the desert? Folks, you can have had amazing experiences with God in the past, and those amazing experiences of God in the past are not guarantees of spiritual life. Um, Nicodemus, we've, we've made this point on several occasions, John 3. Nicodemus said to Jesus, we know that you are a prophet sent from God, a teacher sent from God. No one could do the signs that you're doing unless God is with him. We know that. Who's we? Probably Pharisees. Well, the Pharisees know. In, in, um, it's in Mark, it's in uh, Matthew 28. After the resurrection... The guards came to the, to the chief priests and they told them all things that had occurred. They knew what happened. And they said, look, um, when, when anybody asks you, you tell them. We, uh, the, the, his disciples came while we were sleeping and attacked and, and uh, took his body and, and took it away. And if, it, if the word comes to the governor, we'll, we'll protect you. Well, in the first place, they shouldn't have been asleep on guard duty. Right. That's, a, that's a capital offense in the Roman army. In the second place, the chief priests knew the resurrection. They, they were told all things that had happened. Are you with me here? They had amazing experiences, amazing evidence of who Jesus was and what his claims were, and they were unbelieving by the same in the same way, Israel in the wilderness had the same kinds of things happen to them. Amazing experiences. But that gave them no confidence, no expectation that they will necessarily participate in the fulfillment of the promises. That's what chapter 4 is going to be about. 
the the meaning the in, the implication of this, folks, is um, while I don't have certainty about my salvation, I can have confidence. But in that confidence, I must not use it as a pretext for just living any way that I want. Are you with me here? If I have confidence that Jesus is who he says he is, then I'm an ambassador of the king. Yes or no? All of us are. Well, what happens... Do you know, perhaps, do you know the story of the Japanese ambassador in Washington on December 6th, 1948, uh, 1941? Do you know the story at all? They were struggling because um, the cryptographer was there to get the final part of the message about declaring war on the United States, but they didn't have adequate uh, typists to type out the message, so the message got delayed, and uh, uh, the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor already occurred. Roosevelt already got word that it had happened when the, 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 the message got to the Secretary of State. Um, that meant that the Japanese ambassador and his immediate staff were enemy uh, agents uh, in a foreign nation that they're at war with. Are you with me? So, say that again. Yeah. Yeah, it was too late. So, um, did they have any rights under international law? Not really. Now, in, uh, to his credit, uh, Roosevelt let them get out of the country. But the but the point is that an ambassador in a, in a, a territory that's in um, in rebellion against the king, who, who is the true ruler of the territory, has no rights. And that means those our enemies, those who, who have set themselves up as enemies of God, can do anything to us. If I read, I, do you remember this? Turn back to chapter 2, and I'm going too slow here. I've got to pick up the pace. Verse 10. I proposed this interpretation when we were there the first night. Uh, for it was fitting for him, for whose sake are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. He's talking about God the Father here, because he's going to talk about what this one does to the Son shortly. It's fitting for him in bringing many sons to glory to make the cap- captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That word, to make perfect, one of the possibilities, and I just ran across that this morning, one of the possibilities for translation is uh, to ordain him as a high priest. But what was the ordinate? If if that's the right way to read this, make perfect to to ordain as a high priest. What is the what is the ordination ceremony in verse ten? Suffering. And if that's, if that's valid, by the way, that first night was the first time I ever thought that thought. So uh, I'm amazed at how I learn from Scripture. I, I learn primarily when I'm teaching, not when I'm studying. But, but um, uh, to, if, if you ordain the high priest through sufferings, what will his priestly people expect? Suffering. We've got to be prepared, folks. Um, 
a fellow who was a missionary in China in the late 1940s uh, was asked after he after they left after they came back to to the United States if you could go back and do anything different in China than you did what would you do differently he said we did not prepare the people for suffering um, folks I, I, I'm, I am astonished that President Trump was elected, as many of you were. Am I right? Um, that may only delay the inevitable, because the generations coming up who will be leaders of the country in the next 10, 15 years, 20 years, are people who have been taught an entirely different way of thinking about life than you and I were raised with. And Christianity has no place in it. And you saw a little of that with Bernie Sanders in recent weeks. Yes? You ought to have no place in the public life of our country if you believe that rejection of Jesus means that you're an enemy of God. Are you with me? Um, in, it, it, I, I, I still don't know whether it's true or not. Vancouver is supposed to have uh, passed a law that children who, who are in families, raised in families that will not support gay marriage can be taken from their parents. Um, and it won't be a very very long stretch to begin to think these people don't, don't, don't think properly. They're mentally ill. They need to be treated. They're controlled by Satan. Yeah, I'm talking about what they're thinking about us. They think that we're, they're going to, before long, be thinking that we are mentally ill. They are controlled by Satan. But that entails that suffering's probably in the future. This is one of the first generations in the history of the United States where, where the, uh, the older generation can't expect something better for the next generations than the past. Um, the, but, but, folks, if it means the purification of the church, how much better? Instead of having people who are only culturally Christian, um, instead of having all of your gifts to Christian work tax-deductible, then only people who really love the work of the Lord are going to be giving. Are you with me here? But you don't get any tax deduction for giving gifts to your children and your brothers and sisters, your parents, do you? So why should we get tax deductions for giving to our children and our brothers and sisters? Am I making sense to you? Uh, but how can I hold fast in such times? I have to have a Jesus who's big enough to handle this. And the, he asks the third question in verse 18. To whom did he swear that they would not, did he seer, that they would not enter um, his rest? So look, to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest except to those you have, uh, you, you have probably disobeyed? disobeyed? Yeah, that's probably right, although the word can be used for unbelief. But why were they diso uh, disobedient? Well, verse 19 makes it clear. And we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Folks, people are not disobedient because, um, let me see how to say this. Sin, uh, sin results in disobedience, but it is not at its heart disobedience. Sin arises because we think we know better what's good for us than God does. I don't trust him. And so 
I, I trust what my desires are. I trust what my ideas are. And I'm right back in Genesis 3. I'm right back in the garden with, with Eve, reaching out for the fruit and eating it. So in this case, really, obedience and belief are the same. Well, they're, they're, they're so tightly inter, intertwined that you can't really... Um, so, so um, yeah, obey the gospel is a good phrase. We uh, s- Several times during our study of John some years ago, uh, Fred and I had question about, well, what, what is, how did it go? I forget how it goes. What does it mean to do the will of the Father? And um, uh, so I, I suggested to him that he go through the Gospel of John. Maybe you would profit from doing this. Go through the, the, the Gospel of John and look for the commandments that Jesus gives. Uh huh. So Jesus says, um, um, uh, You are my disciples if you keep my commandments. Well, what are the commandments of Jesus? Go through John and look it up. Look, look, look and see. Pardon? Yeah, that's one of them. But just leave that and, and sometime when you're studying through the Gospel of John, go look for the commandments of Jesus. And it's astonishing what they are. It's really quite astonishing. So, uh, uh, unbelief always issues in disobedience, even when you're obeying. As we said, looking at Philippians chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago. Now we can move into chapter 4. But before we do, do notice there in verse 18... To whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest? That raises the question of what rest is. So, from chap- in chapter 4, we're going to take up the question of rest. And it's a critical question. Um, I grew up in um, a setting where I was beginning to be ex- exposed to Dallas Seminary as a teenager. And one of the graduates of the seminary was a man who pastored in Houston. He wrote a ton of books and had a ton of tapes, hundreds of tapes. People listened to his tapes all over the country. Uh, He had one book called The Faith Rest Life. I was struggling in my spiritual life, didn't know quite how to get anywhere. Um, The church I attended said, uh, you need to to get saved. Well, I got saved. And if you're not doing right, then you've got to get rededicated. And then beyond that, you don't drink or smoke or, or dance or have premarital sex. You do give tithes and you attend church and you witness. And the pastor said, but don't witness if you don't love people because they'll know immediately. And I, I didn't love people. I was scared to death of people. Um, and so I, I would pray. I would stand in the invitation and plead with God to give me love for people. And he never did. I remained terrified of people for years. Uh, Less so now, but still, it's there, and I've got these are things I'm I've been struggling with all my spiritual life. But that was the sum total of the Christian life, as as far as he gave us guidance. Everything was about obedience, and you just need to be more committed. So I'd go back and rededicate my life and hope to be more committed this time. I, I never was, so I didn't know what to do. Um, so I got into this book, The Faith Rest Life, and started reading it. And it sounded so good, but it was, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. 
it was so nebulous, I, I couldn't get my hand on anything in the book. And I thought, this sounds wonderful, but I can't make sense out of it. I don't know what this is. So what is rest? What are we talking about? And this, this chapter was a key chapter, but I'll tell you, folks, he didn't understand Hebrews 4. <laughs> okay? So we're going to go. we got a lot of work to do. It's going to take some time to get through. It'll take the rest of the time we have tonight um, to get through this concept of rest. But look at how he starts it. Verse 1. So, let us fear, lest, since a promise remains of entering into his rest, any of you shall seem to come short of it. What is rest? And what is, it, what is this warning that he gives us in verse 1? It is possible, as, as I look at this verse, I don't know how else to read it, it is possible in any gathering in the name of Jesus that there are both believers and non-believers present. Is that true? How do you tell the difference? You can't. Um, We have friends. When we met them, I was in the Army, and they were in the same apartment complex that we were in. When we moved into the the town of Killeen, uh, we had no money. Payday had come while I was on leave, and uh, I wasn't going to get paid. It was, it was Sunday. We weren't going to get paid until Friday, and I didn't know what we were going to do. We had a few, a, a jar of coins that we were saving for our baby who was going to be born. Who instead, we spent it on whatever groceries we could buy for a jar of coins back in 1970. And uh, we ate beans and cornbread great part of the week. I can't Was it every day? <laughs> uh, but, but this couple said, look, we've got money set back. We're going to Spain on a, an evangelistic trip. We want to give you the money to pay your first month's rent and your, um, your um, uh, deposit. You can pay us back on, on uh, payday, and that'll be fine. Uh, he was in the Army, too. We followed them. We, we were friends for a couple of years. Uh, we kept up with them, especially my parents kept up with them. They lived in Georgia when they got out of the service. And, and we just loved them, and they, I thought they loved us. Um, but how many years ago, Jen? Um, seven, eight, six, something in the neighborhood of that. Is it longer than that? He, he told her he didn't love her, never had, and he left and got a divorce, walked away from the church, walked away from everything. He had been a leader in his church. Hmm? What happened? And I, you know, how do I know? Maybe he had a stroke and just, honestly, I mean, people have strokes and they begin, their personalities change, don't they? Here I am with with, uh, Patty sitting here as a nurse and can talk about this much better than I. But uh, I don't know what happened, but there's one possibility. He was never a believer. If faith never fails... Because it's supported by the power of God. What happened with him? I don't know. I've, I, I taught with a pastor uh, back in, when was that, 77 and 78, the school year, 77, 78. He was the dean of students um, at the college where I was teaching part-time. 
And by his own testimony, he had only been saved for two or three years at that point. Uh, you all know him. We've talked about it. Um, but he was, he was known as a good pastor, wasn't he? Uh, and and, and in, the, in the Southern Baptist Convention, if you're a good pastor, that means you're a soul winner. Well, how do you win souls when you're lost? Because the power's in the gospel, not in the, not in the gospel speaker. Are you with me here? The truth is the truth, and the Holy Spirit uses the truth no matter who speaks it. So what happens? Given a case like that, and I think in his case, I think he was saved, but an evangelist convinced him. Well, that's a possibility too. Um, but, but the point is to say uh, there, is a, there is a place, as we've talked, uh, for confidence. But there's no place for certainty. If faith is only possible when there are certainties, there can be no faith because there's very little that's certain in life. Okay? Am I making sense? We're older. We know. Yes? But what about when Jesus says, I will never let you go? Yeah. So, well, I, I'm not sure he says, I think he says, I think he says, I will never leave you. There is certainty about the promises. I don't remember. Um, uh, Hebrews 13 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, in, uh, that's certainty about God. But am I participating in that promise? There's not certainty about that. There's confidence about it, but there's not certainty. And when I have a pattern of unbelief in my life, are you with me here? Yes, no? I, well, I, I, I just can't trust God for that. People who say, I just can't forgive that sin. You mean with all that you've been forgiven, you can't forgive the sin that that brother or sister committed against you? No, I can't forgive. Then on what basis can you claim that you're forgiven? Am I making sense to you? So, so here I come now. Then we've got to ask the question, what is rest? We've got to be afraid. We've got, there are things that we must fear in the Christian life. One of them is simply being confident about everybody who's made a confession of faith. My dad lived in open, unrepentant sin for, um, he died when he was 57, um, for over 40 years that I know of. Open, unrepentant sin. He was a deacon and a Sunday school teacher. It was, it was not sin that we, that we call sin as Christians. It was sin of what the, the Bible calls sin. And he was unrepentant in it for over 40 years that I know of. Okay? He, he, my, my, he and my mother married when he was uh, 19. And, and this sin was already present in his life before they got married. Okay? And he was, he was unrepentant. He, he's, he believed we were the ones that were the problem. He was not. Because my mother divorced him, um, the church that we grew, all three of us grew up in, abandoned my mother, but embraced my father, who was in open, unrepentant sin. Shame on the church. So, so I look at these people, and I, I, I how, how do you know? So we're back to Hebrews three, twelve, and thirteen again. 
Beware, brothers, lest there shall be in. Go back and look at 3.12. That's a critical verse, folks. You've got you to think about this. Beware, lest there shall be, uh, be in whom? In your own hearts. No, in 3.12? In any one of you. In any one of you. It could be anyone. And as when we get to chapter 6, I'm going to argue that the people most in danger are the leaders of the church. They're not the youngest Christians in the church. It's the leaders of the church who are most in danger. After all, folks, none of the disciples thought Judas was the betrayer. When he got up after, after Jesus identified the betrayer, Judas got up and left, and not one of them thought, Oh, he's going to betray. They thought he's going to go give some money to the poor or buy something that's needed for the, for the festival. Remember this? Not one of them thought that. Why? Because he had done all the miracles that they did in Matthew chapter 10. He had done all the preaching they did in Matthew chapter 10. Yes? So let us be fearful then, lest since a promise remains of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to, to fall short. When I see somebody wavering, not in their obedience, yes, also in their obedience, but that's not the point of Hebrews. When I see somebody wavering in their faith in Jesus, that ought to scare me to death and put, and put the, the Christian community into action to come around and call them back to faith in who Jesus is. So he says, verse 2, for indeed we received the good news just as they did. But the word that was, that, they, that was preached did not profit them since they did not mix it with faith in their hearing. Um, what, what good news did they receive? Who was the they in verse 2? Who are the ones who heard? Yeah, the people that coming coming out of Egypt. They got good news. You're going to leave Egypt. You're getting out of slavery. You're going to go to the promised land, and there it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Yes? But they didn't, they didn't take the word that they heard and mix it with faith. So verse 3. The translations are are divided on how to handle the verb at the beginning of verse 3. For we uh, who have believed enter that rest, do enter that rest, are entering that rest, or will enter that rest. This can. can enter. <laughs> okay, there are at least five different translations. Um, let me move here. Um, here is a, here is a uh, treatment of the various translations uh, the the uh, Christian Standard Bible, the Contemporary Jewish Bible, English Standard Version, Lexham uh, English Bible, the New, Inter New English Translation, the New American Bible, Revi Revised Edition, New American Standard, New English Bible, NIV, NRSV, and RSV all, read, all render enter. ASV says do enter, and, and Good News Bible says do receive. The uh, Contemporary English Bible the Eastern Orthodox Bible, the uh, uh, God's Word Bible, and the New Jewish New Jerusalem Bible read are entering. The Good News and the Contemporary uh, is that Contemporary CEV um, English version 
reads, will enter. The message reads, we'll experience that state of resting. And the uh, expository New Testament, the Living Bible, the New uh, Century Bible, and the New Living Translation read, are able to enter. So we've got one, two, three, four, five different possible translations for this expression. So what are we to do with this? Greek is the most precise language ever in the history of the world. That is why God inspired the New Testament to be written in Greek. <laughs> Except for all the places where it isn't, and this is one of the many places where it isn't. Uh, Greek doesn't help here. It's a present tense. Uh, if, if you ask, if there's a party this weekend and you ask me about my attendance, what will you ask? Are you going? Are you going? That's a present tense. Will you go? Will you, be there? Will you go? Yes. Uh, will you be there? Uh, but so, so are you going is, is what I'm after at, for the illustration. In English, we can use the present, especially the present progressive tense for future re- uh, reference. So uh, uh, next week, I'm going to be, I hope, here on Thursday night. Yes. Uh, uh, don't boast, boast about the future, but <laughs> I hope. Um, the, the point here is that the present can be used to, in, in Greek, can be used to refer to the past, the present, and the future. So how do you know which one it is? Well, the only way you can know is through the context. One of the, one of the great commentators of our day is a guy named Douglas Moo, M-O-O, Moo. <laughs> how he got that name, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> D- Moo has a commentary on, on Hebrews. It's a relatively short one, but he has a commentary on, on Hebrews, and he says here, Rest is primarily in the future, but there's a, there's a present aspect to it. i got a problem with that interpretation. Let me show you why I have the problem. It's, uh, uh, by the way, uh, that last line on the screen there uh, is an important one to share with you for me. Um, part of what I'm trying to do when I teach Bible is not just teach what the Bible is talking about, but to teach you how to think about what the Bible is doing. Um, when you find, when you check various translations, and you should, you should never read only one translation. You should read multiple translations. Wherever you have this kind of, of issue arise in the translations, you've got, you know you have an interpretational problem you've got to solve. Because if I read it one way, it means one thing. If I read it another way, it means another thing. Are you with me? All right. So what are we to make of this? Well, only the context will tell. So let's get through the context and see where it leads. Verse six, um, we who uh, verse three, we who have believed enter the rest as it as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest, even though God's works were completed from the foundation of the world. Let me say, folks, is God resting today? Then what does John uh, 5, turn to John 5 with me. Uh, That's the question. John 5. Um, This is the story, this is one of the stories of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. So verses 1 to 9, you've got the man healed on the Sabbath day. Remember this? 
verse 17, the, the, the Pharisees are upset with Jesus because he's healing on the Sabbath. And in verse 17, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I work. Is God resting? Guess not. So we've got to ask, well, what does rest mean? Yeah, it depends on the definition. That's right, yeah. Everything is definition. I was in a senior theology class with Charles Ryrie, and he said at some point this semester, you're going to think all we're, going to, all we're doing is, is um, wrangling over definitions. He said that's exactly what we're doing. All theology is definition. If you get the wrong definition, you may, it may just be slightly wrong, but in time it will lead you so far off. It will make a, make a real problem. So you've got to be very careful about definitions. So what is rest? What did it mean for God to rest? And what does it mean for his people to rest? So that's where we're headed. Look, verse uh, uh, 4. For he spoke uh, uh, somewhere about the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his, uh, his works. And in this place again, they shall not enter into my rest. Since therefore um, it remains that some will enter into it, by the way, there I have a verb form that has to be read as future. Yes? Do you have that? Verse 6, it remains that some will enter into it. Yeah. Oh, oh. it remains for some to enter it. But that necessarily entails future, doesn't it? Um, and those who formerly got the good news did not enter because of disobedience unbelief. Again, he marks off a day as today in David saying after so long a time, as he said beforehand, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So as long as we are having the, uh, uh, the, the, the proclamation of the gospel, as long as the message of Jesus is going out, today is still available. Don't harden your heart. Well, what does it mean to harden your heart? Verse seven, or verse eight. For if Joshua had given them rest, no place would have been. Uh, he would not have spoken about another day after these things. Therefore, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Yes. This is special rest. Special rest. It's it's actually the only place where this word occurs in the whole Bible. Um, Sabbatismos. It's um, it's obviously derived from the Hebrew word Sabbath. Well, we're going to have to answer that question. That's that's where we're headed. You're 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 getting on toward the answer here. Let's press on. Verse ten: For the one who has entered his rest has ceased from his labors, even as God did from his. Let me ask you: In the book of Hebrews, is the author writing to people who have ceased from their labors? No. No. What kind of labors are they are they facing? Suffering, persecution. Yes? Have they ceased from their labors? No. no. Then rest is not now. Well, does rest mean when I'm not physically We'll have to answer that. Go back to verse um, 3 then. Since this verb form can be translated either past, present, or future, <laughs> I have to let the context tell me how to read it. There are some who will, who will enter into it. Yes? There remains a Sabbath rest. We can fall short of it. Yes? So, what are we talking about? Well, 
What I have to do is define rest. We, we now know that it's future. Beyond that, pardon? It's not, it's not new birth, and it's not justification. So what is it? Well, that's where we have to go now. Let's, uh, the very fact that according to Psalm 95, God was still offering his rest in the time of David, long after Israel had been in the land, meant that the rest being offered was spiritual, superior to that which Joshua obtained. Well, what, what rest did Joshua obtain? It was always spiritual, but that's not the point here. It is as yet unattained. All rest has work. Work is not an effect of sin. Work is what God created us for. But it's a work that is a restful work. <laughs> that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, except there are some of you who like yard work. You love gardening. I, I can't understand it either. <laughs> it's, just, it's useless to me. I, I have a whole lot more money than time right now as far as that concerned, so... The only thing I need is somebody to mow, blow, and weedy. Beyond that, I don't need anything else. <laughs> uh, uh, don't bother me with yard work. I hate it. Um, um, but some people love yard work. Um, I have a colleague at the seminary who loves working on old cars. He buys old cars and restores them, and they're beautiful. He, may, he, he does works of art with them. They're absolutely gorgeous. I cut that board off three, uh, three times and it's still too short is <laughs> my mantra <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know from working on cars um, so, so, but, but those of you who love yard work those of you who love working on cars those of you who love sewing if you absolutely love it when you accomplish something don't you feel refreshed isn't there some sense of refreshment in that? The work that God intended Adam and Eve to do was a work that was so meaningful that when they would come to bed at night, they would be dog-tired but completely satisfied. And you know what Proverbs says about sleep? What does it say? Oh, that's, that it says about sleep. It says lots of things about sleep, doesn't it? One of the things it says is that the working man's sweet sleep is sweet. It's the rich man's uh, uh, sleep that's, that's disturbed. Yes? His diet's too rich. Are you with me? Yes, no? Right? So God has a work for us to do that is so meaningful and so fulfilling that we will be thoroughly worn out at the end of the day, but we will be thoroughly fulfilled and look forward to the next day. In Memphis, I, would go, I, would, I, I, I didn't want Friday to come, and I looked forward to Monday because I was going to be able to be in Bible class again, and I couldn't wait to get back. Are, are you with me here? Uh, it was so fulfilling. My, my point is that rest is not workless, but it's struggle-less. Um, there's a whole lot more to be said here. So Paul, the author says here, look at verse 11. And this is kind of a key word, key, key verse in this whole discussion. Hebrews 4.11, would you say? Be diligent. Yeah. Have you ever seen anybody resting diligently? No. <laughs> that, 
Those two terms just don't go together, do they? It does. Yeah. Uh, and what else? What must you be diligent to do? To enter the rest. If you must be diligent to enter, where are you? You're outside it, aren't you? If you must be diligent to enter a house, where are you with respect to the house? You're outside. So rest is future. That we now can establish. But what are we talking about even? Um, Genesis 2, 1 to 3 gives us the first reference to what we call rest in the scriptures. You know the verses. Um, Let me turn there so that I, I will get everything out as it should be. So, the heavens and the earth um, uh, and everything in them were completed. By the seventh day, God completed his work that he had done, and he, my text here says, rested on the seventh day. Seven, see, he worked six days straight. Amen? Dawn to dark, six days straight, made the whole world worn out. So he switched off the light the sixth night and thought, I'm going to rest tomorrow. (laughs) Amen? Does it make any sense? No. So, so, So in fact, however, I'm, I'm astonished that this translation reads rested. That word is Shabbat in Hebrew. You know this word, Sabbath. Yeah? Shabbat means more to stop than it means to rest. Um, and uh, so I have to ask the question, well, did God rest or did he stop? Well, he stopped because he's not tired. So rest is the wrong word. So what, what is it, why did he stop? It was done. What would you add to what he did? Um, I, I think I would have, uh, with, with one fellow who was quite a wag, he wrote... Um, it all started with Eve. Was a comic reading about the fall into sin, but uh, he said, "I think I would have put in a suggestion box, <laughs> and in this, I would have put a suggestion. Please don't let anybody sin." <laughs> uh, but what would you do to make the, the world better than God had already made it? Since God said at the end of chapter one, it was all very good, then then what would you have done differently? Uh, so the point is that God stopped because his work was done. Well, what work was done? Hmm? Creation. Good, yeah, that's where I'm headed. All right, let me get there. She, she got it. Yeah. Um, creation. The beginning of the story says, the earth was without form and void, darkness was upon the face of the, of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. Yes, or it possibly could be read, a violent wind moved upon the waters. There's no life possible there. The the earth is a chaotic mess. Yes, and the expression formless and void is used only a few times. I've forgotten the number, three or four at most um, in the rest of the Old Testament. One place where it's used is in Jeremiah chapter 4. And there, it's used actually in the reversal of the creation story. So I looked to the heavens, and there was darkness, and to the earth, and there was no light. There was no man, and and all the animals were removed from the earth, and everything was formless and void. It's It's judgment reversing the creative process 
for the land of Israel in Jeremiah 4. Well, if you're reversing creation by judgment, what are you doing when you, when you, when you, when you create? What's the opposite of judgment? Hmm? Yeah? Grace. Or? How about salvation? God took something that was a chaotic mess and turned it into what was very good. And we can call it creation, and that's what it is. That's the right term to use. Another term we can use is salvation. And when God talks about his saving work in Psalm, is it, is it Psalm 77? I don't know whether he does that in Psalm 77 or not. Well, turn to Psalm 135. He does that in this, uh, in this psalm. 135th Psalm um, is a, a, a hymn of praise. Um, and he, it starts with a call to praise in verses 1, 2, and 3. Then a reason for praise in verse 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his treasured possession. The, often the first statement in a hymn of praise, the, after the call to praise, the first statement is a summary of what the praise is going to be. So, so they call you to praise, and then they tell you what to praise God for. And here is what to praise God for. Uh, he has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his treasured possession. For I know that the Lord is great. Our Lord is greater than all gods. Yahweh does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the depths. What has that to do with choosing Jacob for himself and Israel as his treasured possession? Look at, yeah, look at verse 7. He causes the clouds to rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for rain and brings the wind from his storehouses. He struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Wait, wait a minute, one is creation, the other is salvation, isn't it? Look at Psalm 136. Again, call to praise in verses 1, 2, and 3. Summary of the praise, verse 4. He alone uh, does great wonders, his love is eternal. What are the great wonders that he does? Well, verses four, 5 through uh, uh, 9 is creation. Verses 10 to the end to 22 are uh, the salvation of Israel. What has creation to do with the salvation of Israel? Well, here's the... Pardon, Jan, go ahead. Because he redeemed his people from Egypt? Yeah, but how does that have anything to do with creation? I don't know. I, that's, the, that's the point. We don't know. We've got to ask these questions. Because if he created something out of matter and he saved Egypt uh, or Israel from uh, their lost state. It, it, there's a parallel there. Mm-hmm. Yes, but what is it? Pardon? Yeah? Yes. Uh, what's another term that we use for God giving new life? Regeneration. Or broader? How about salvation? Genesis is an odd book. I don't know whether you've ever considered the, the, the whole of the book of Genesis, try to ask what it's about. Uh, there are two Old Testament survey books that I have used in the past when I taught Old Testament survey. <clears throat> 
and they have a separate chapter for Genesis 1 to 11 and Genesis 12 to 50. As if Moses didn't know what he was doing when he wrote Genesis 1 to 50. Because there are two, obviously two unrelated books, the primeval period, Genesis 1 to 11, and the patriarchal period, Genesis 12 to 50, right? Well, what, is, what did God promise to Abraham in Genesis 12? Good. Well, that, that's actually in, that's later, but what did he promise him in 12? All nations, All nations will be blessed. What if Genesis 1 to 11 is the background for all that God's going to do in the patriarchs and in all that he does? So that creation, if, if ultimately, if Abraham's people, his seed, will rule the earth then God's saving work doesn't come to pass until God Abraham's seed rules the whole earth. Are you with me here? Yes, no? What was the plan in Genesis 1? What, what did God create the, the human race to do? To rule the whole earth. So until the human race rules the whole earth... Salvation isn't complete. In Genesis 2, 1 to 3, the human race rules the earth. In chapter 3, the human race capitulates its right to rule. Because they think they have a better way to the blessing than God has. Then, what I'm suggesting... hmm? No, not the second coming. I'll say more about it as we go. I want to get enough out that we can get it. I've got a whole lot more to say about rest, but this much I want to say tonight so that it's clear. Rest is going to come when the work of God is complete. Uh, In Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, in Exodus 28 to 11, Israel is to observe Sabbath. Why? Because God did. What will it mean for them to keep Sabbath? Hmm? Yes. What's in the immediate context? Remember the Sabbath day to keep the keep, to keep it holy. For in six days, God um, created the heavens and the earth and all things that are in them. And on the seventh day, He ceased from His labor. Therefore, you must give rest to your servant, your manservant, your female servant, to your donkey, to your ox. Are you with me here? It's not just that I must not work on the Sabbath. I must not make anybody else work on the Sabbath. I must give everyone a rest. But there's more. In Exodus 31, there's the Jew, there is the sabbatical year. So that Sabbath is extended to a whole year's period. And in that period, how's Israel going to get any food? They can't go out and, and plant. They can't plow. They can't harvest. So how are they going to get food? How are they going to live for that year? Trust God, what's that mean? What's it look like? Well, as he, as he develops it elsewhere in Leviticus 23 to 25, he says, I will make the harvest of the, of the sixth year last all the way through the seventh year and into the eighth year, and, and you will have enough to eat until the new harvest comes in in the eighth year. 
So you're going to trust him for two things. They're going to trust him that the harvest will be good enough in the sixth year that they'll have enough food for a whole year plus. And they're going to trust him also because the very poor don't have any land. Yes? So what do they do? They're going to, they're going to live like they did in the wilderness. Just go out and gather what grows of, its, of itself. They can't take out more than a day's food, but there, there will always be food there. Jim, isn't the Sabbath really a holiday for the purpose of express, expressing our belief that God did do it all in six days? Yeah, the, the point, it's not just that. It's more than that, but it is that. Um, uh, it's more a statement that uh, I trust God to provide what he promised he would provide. So the Sabbath, Israel is an agrarian people. The promises, read Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 14 uh, in this context and see what the promises are. What are the blessings God offers? They are agricultural blessings. So to rest on the Sabbath is profoundly important. By the way, a farmer who only rests one day a week isn't really expressing much faith. But a farmer who rests a whole year and especially when he comes to the seventh uh, 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 Sabbath year, there's the fiftieth, and he has to he has to rest two years in a row. Is really acting in faith. Are you with me? Um, so we've got more to say about the Sabbath. There are other Sabbath days as well. Um, the first um, the first day of the month, which is New Moon, is a Sabbath. Uh, the first day of uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread is a Sabbath. The last day is. Feast of, first, of uh, uh, first Fruits is a Sabbath. First Fruits always comes on a Sunday, but it's a Sabbath. Uh, Feast of Tabernacles, I'm sorry, Feast of uh, Pentecost is a Sabbath. For a day of uh, the Feast of Trumpets is a Sabbath. Day of Atonement is a Sabbath. The first and last day of the Feast of Tabernacles are Sabbaths. So if you're only keeping one day a week, and you're calling yourself obedient to the Sabbath commandment, you're not. You're violating the commandment because you're not taking all the, all the Sabbaths off, and you're not taking off the sabbatical year and the jubilee year. Don't tell me how obedient you are because you keep the Sabbath. Um, so there are all kinds of other Sabbaths. We talked about the Sabbath, sabbatical and jubilee year. But what's most important is what we'll have to talk about next week, and that is, uh, what does rest mean in Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua? The, the word is used 37 times in these three books, 14, 12, and 11. Can you give us a summary right now? No. 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 Not now. Not yet. I, I have already, but, but it went by fast and, and nobody wrote it down, I think. But, the, but here we're going to look at these references and see what rest means. Let me see what the next phrase. Uh, oh, yeah. Then what is rest? And we'll, we'll talk about that next week. Let me pray and we'll call the class to, a, uh, to an end. Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to study. It will be lost on us if we don't take the warnings of Hebrews carefully to heart, not only for ourselves but for each other, and remind us that when hard times come, our task is not merely to weep with one another, but to come together and, and encourage one another with the greatness, the supremacy, the marvel of what Jesus is, to call us to, to hold steadfast to him, not give up on him. Father, we fail so many times. Don't let us fail in that. 
Um, keep us, keep us in your grace. Keep us in your power, so that we may indeed see the day when Jesus comes. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.